Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. And I'm Mason Adams. Today, we're talking with the creators of the Black and Appalachia podcast about the recent mountain road trip through the coal fields. What we saw on our trip mirrors very well with the things that we have been thinking about and talking about. In some ways, it's affirming, but also it's sad, right? That like these are the struggles that Black folks are having across the board. And the eastern band of Cherokee Indians in Western North Carolina doesn't recognize same-sex marriage. LGBTQ members have spent the past several months trying to change that. With my partner, we had our second year anniversary on 822. And I proposed to her because I love her. We'll also hear how some renters in Pittsburgh don't feel safe in their homes due to rodents, roaches, and leaky roofs. It is unfair. There's babies in this building and stuff and everything. I got great grandbaby. I got grandson. I'm in the house bundled up cold. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. And I'm Mason Adams. This past summer, a popular podcast called Black in Appalachia celebrated its first anniversary with a live show in Pittsburgh. Hey everybody, I am Dr. Nkeshi Alameen, sociologist of race and place and Black Appalachian experiences. And I'm Angela Dennis. I'm a race and social justice reporter in Knoxville, Tennessee. Hey y'all, I'm Alana Norwood. I'm a Berea College alumni and the community archivist for Black in Appalachia. And you're live at the very first Black, Black in Appalachia, Appalachia podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, speaking of Appalachia and you know the mountains, we heard that Pittsburgh is referred to as the Paris of Appalachia. Is that a real thing? <laughs> <laughs> Our producer, Chris, who's in the back and um, directing all the things, he always says that Knoxville is closer to Pittsburgh in terms of culture, more closer to Pittsburgh than it is to Nashville. And we're only two hours from Nashville, but Nashville's not an Appalachian city. And so the more and more we're here, the more we're starting to see that, right? Okay, that makes more sense. It's explaining the whole Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania reference. I got it now. We interviewed the creators of Black and Appalachia last year as they were about to launch the podcast. Here's Nkeshi talking about the show's mission we're thinking about and want to highlight and want to, like we keep saying, make space for young folks, right? Like to make Appalachia something that they can feel proud of, that they can cling on to, and that will empower them to not only stay, but to strive and fight the injustices and to fight to make this place a viable place in terms of the material, you know, economic resources, political resources, all of the things that they need to have good lives in this region. This summer, Nkeshi and the rest of the team set out on a road trip across the central Appalachian coal fields. They ended with that live show in Pittsburgh. They wanted to hear stories from more Black people throughout the region. So they thought, what better way to do that than to hit the road? I recently sat down with the team to find out more about their trip. Yeah, we wanted to get to parts of Appalachia that we didn't have a chance to, to go to and, and, and see a lot um, to learn their stories and to be able to pull some of those into the podcast, you know, um, also, but to 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 tell a different um, urban Appalachian experience. Right. Because we're here in Knoxville and a lot of our stories kind of center around Knoxville because we're here and, and it's easy to access material here especially in the pandemic year. But there's other urban centers in Appalachia. And it was nice for me to kind of really think about, like, Pittsburgh being a larger city, and this is Appalachia, too. Um, how about West Virginia? You know, y'all, y'all mention, y'all shout out West Virginia as the kind of only state fully within Appalachia. What was your experience like traveling through the mountain state? Uh, for me, it was extremely eye-opening. Um, obviously, I've never been to West Virginia And just to kind of see, you know, the state of things there and also, you know, a state that doesn't have, you know, a large population of black people and just to see, you know, how they're surviving and thriving, you know, amongst, you know, things like poverty and socioeconomic disparities and things like that was um, for me, you know, an educational opportunity, but extremely, you know, eye opening as well. Yeah. And so, you know, we talked about all of this energy in Pittsburgh and the Hill District and it felt like in West Virginia, the energy was a little low, right? Like I, like Angela said, there's not a lot of black people. 
And so it just, you could see these towns that were booming and thriving, like whenever coal was the main industry. And now uh, in 2021, that's just not the case. And so a lot of people have either left because of, you know, the lack of opportunities or they're just doing their best to survive in an area that doesn't really have a whole lot for them. So again, it was really eye-opening and it it expanded my perspective on West Virginia because I didn't really know a whole lot about the state or the region before I visited. We spent some time in Maitwan and learned a little bit about that town. And for some reason, it, it, Maitwan just kind of resonated with me. And so I wanted to dig in to find out a little bit more about the Cold Wars and things like that. And I think that it, there was just a, a, a rich history of a rich black history in West Virginia. Right. And I think that that gets lost. Right. Especially when we go there, when we look at the population, it's small. But I think that that history is not insignificant. Right. When we talked about when we were doing some research and trying to learn more about black coal miners and we saw like the that, like the 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 numbers of people that migrated to West Virginia to work in the coal mines. Right. In the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s. And, and so I think that when I'm looking at Charleston and how bare it seemed, like, it kind of seemed really um, the, the energy was low. It kind of felt gray. Um, you know, we were trying to figure out what's going on here. But when I read that history and I read about black folks in McDowell County and Mercer County and the things that they were doing in the 1920s, you know, I, I, I wonder wh- what happened. Like, where's that? I know, I know coal obviously is a part of that, but there's that rich history that is important for us to tap into. When we think about like young folks staying in Appalachia, right? I think part of that history is important for us to connect them with, right? To let them know what their ancestors did, you know, and, and especially when we're talking about coal miners who had, in often cases, very little power, very little ownership, right? But they were shaking and moving and changing, not only in terms of their union work, but they were fighting for civil rights in the 20s, right? And and making moves and making changes. And I think that that's important to remind folks, right? To remind the young folks who are in the region, you know, that rich history is important to remember. Again, that was Nkeshi El Amin, co-host of Black in Appalachia. Nkeshi, Angela, Alana, and the rest of the Black and Appalachia team covered a lot of miles. They drove through cities and towns and rural areas, meeting people along the way. They visited with Black Appalachians in Charleston, Clarksburg, and Matewan, West Virginia. The road trip reinforced Black and Appalachia's core mission in ways they found both depressing and inspiring. Again, here's Nkeshi Elamine. What we saw on our trip mirrors very well with the things that we um, have been thinking about and talking about, right? So it's all, in, in some ways, it's affirming, um, but also it's it's sad, right? That, and, and like, these are the struggles that that, that Black folks are having, having across the board, right? So like, in one light, it's like, okay, we, we're, we're doing the thing, we're going in the right direction, but the direction is is not great in general. You know, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Now that y'all are back and have, you know, have had a little time for the for the trip to settle a little bit, you know, how are you feeling about it? What what did you bring back to Knoxville with you that's going to change your your thinking going forward? Um, I think for me, especially traveling to Pittsburgh and, you know, going to this larger, much larger city, you know, than what what we're used to here in Knoxville. You know, you get to these new, bigger cities, you know, everything, you know, looks great. And, um, you know, but then when you actually get there, you kind of see that the people there are still dealing with, you know, the same struggles that we have and are going through here in Knoxville. So I think that was something that I took away from that is just, you know, it might look good on the exterior, you know, and it's great to be able to travel outside of your, you know, your your home city or region. But at the end of the day, you know, the state of black people everywhere is pretty much the same across the board. Yeah. And to kind of mirror what both Nkeshi and Angela have said, like, as a young person, born and raised and like never really left Appalachia in general, <laughs> I've traveled around Appalachia, but I've never really spent a significant time outside of the region. It just kind of like reaffirms me that like this is where I'm supposed to be at. Like I can go halfway across the country to try to find a better experience, but like 
I am still a black woman in America. And that is not like it doesn't really matter where I go. The struggle is still going to be the same. Um, and even if it's not the same exact issues that I'm dealing with, like there are there's going to be pushback. It's going to be hard. Um, and so for me, it's like, let's just put all the energy and all the effort and gather our people together and like make a difference here in my home area, because this is where I'm the most invested. Um, and so it just, it just reminded me like, this is my space. And if I don't have a table, I will build a table and I will gather all the people to sit at the table to discuss ideas and to just make it a better place. Um, because realistically, like, we can't keep living like this. Like, this is not ideal. And so, um, yeah, let's just try to do our best and get the stories out there, learn our history, know what we've been through in the past to establish, like, we're not going to go back. Like, we have to keep pushing forward. <laughs> it's so crazy. When I'm listening I'm listening to Alana talk, and, and, and I feel a sense of, I don't know, connection Alana is like our little sister here and 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 when I listen to her talk and I think about you know when we set forth to do this podcast and and what we wanted to accomplish it's 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 that right it's it's to connect to people in Alana's generation not that I'm that far ahead but you know but really to think about like our folks who are graduating from college and 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 you know are are thinking about these things they're thinking about do I stay or do I go and how can I how can I make home better right and to hear that from her makes me gives me chills like on on a on a on a real level you know and so I I I'm I feel proud and I feel excited to hear that but I know that the fight is not an easy one and so when you you know started talking with us earlier and you were mentioning about all of the stuff that you're seeing here in 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 the region I think it's that we do it to free us right is that the name of the book right like we do this till we free us till we free ourselves right so it's like we do this work because we need this work right for our own sanity for our own freedom for our own health right um and it and it can look in, 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 you know, it can it can come in different ways, right? It it can be on the streets activism. It could be care work. It could be love. It could be, um, you, you know, reporting. Whatever it is, like we are doing this work because we need it, right? Our people need it. Um, and so I, I you know, it, it, it's it's sad that we see these same realities across the board, but we see we see black folks doing similar things as well across the board in terms of caring for our communities and healing our communities and, um, you know, taking us to the next level. Um, so it, it's, it's a, it's a good, you know, bittersweet kind of thing. And, but, but in, in general, I think it's important for us to, to focus on the building aspects of it. Um, cause the structure is going to be here <laughs> until we burn it all down. It's going to be here, you know? And so, uh, <laughs> and so I so I like to kind of just live in the space that we're building. Black folks are building across the region, and it's exciting to see, and it's exciting to hear Alana and other young folks who say, like, this is my place, and I'm going to stay, and I'm going to do the work to make it what I need it to be. Okay. I felt like I went to church there for a minute. I'm going to stop. <laughs> that was Nkashiela Main, co-host of Black in Appalachia. She, her co-host Angela Dennis, and archivist Alana Norwood were speaking with me about their work on the Black and Appalachia podcast. It's produced by East Tennessee PBS. They're making great shows with new perspectives that help us better understand Appalachia. Check it out wherever you get podcasts. When we come back, we're going to return to Pittsburgh, where some renters are struggling to stay in their homes. They're also facing health risks like leaky roofs, rats, and roaches. We'll hear what some tenants are doing to change this. I'm not here just for myself. I'm here for everybody else, too. I'm not just in this for myself, you know. You're listening to Inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Caitlin Tan. We'll be right back. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. 
The COVID-19 pandemic has created a lot of economic hardship. For renters, the situation got worse back in August when a moratorium was lifted that allowed landlords to evict tenants. The moratorium went into effect during the pandemic's early phase, keeping many people from being pushed from their homes. We're going to listen back to a story that our colleagues at WESA and Public Source reported back in March, before the moratorium was lifted. Even then, many renters were struggling to stay in their homes, including Happiness Nirenda, a renter in Pittsburgh. WESA reporter Kate Giamarisi went to meet Nirenda to hear her story. Nestled amid the hills of Baldwin Borough, the Alden South Hills is a complex of more than a thousand apartments. The brick walk-ups are surrounded by trees, playgrounds, and are a short walk from the Baldwin Library and a shopping plaza. The Alden is also one of the top filers of eviction cases in Allegheny County. My name is Happiness Nurenda. I'm a resident at the Alden in the South Hills. Nurenda, who works as a health aide caring for seniors in their homes, is one of the tenants being taken to court. Many of those who live at the Alden are immigrants. She's originally from Malawi. Nurenda says she's outspoken and knows about the eviction moratorium from reading the news. And uh, when I saw that, obviously I had to go look up. I'm like, they're not supposed to be doing this. And of course, I'm gonna, when I go to court on the 15th, I want to mention that to the judge, saying, I don't understand why they're evicting me. The complex's ownership has filed more than 100 eviction cases since last March. Yeah, it's definitely a hot spot. Ann Wright, chief technology officer of the nonprofit Rent Help PGH, has been studying eviction filings. They are not the single highest filer, but the other filer has a very large number of different developments. So in terms of a single development, uh, you know, the number filed for a single development, they are definitely at the top. Nirenda fell behind last year when she had to cut back on driving for Lyft. So yeah, my rent was late, but whatever happened, I made sure to pay the rent before the end of the month. In addition to the rent she already owed, Nirenda got hit with hundreds of dollars in late fees and court costs. She took another financial hit when she missed more work in January when she was at home with a bad case of COVID-19. I waited for my results. I got my results on uh, January 1st. Where to start the new year, right? Mm. Yeah, and uh, I was very, very sick. She had to miss work again and a whole day's pay to go to court last month. To be here when I'm struggling to pay my rent, I would rather be at work. But then court is adjourned and then they don't even have the decency to let me know. District Judge Ralph Kaiser hears all the cases from the Alden. He says he's sympathetic to someone having to take time off of work. But most of the landlord-tenant cases he hears are on hold due to the CDC's orders. Kaiser also says his office has worked hard to get people in and out as quickly as possible and to let tenants know about assistance that is available to them. Managers at the Alden don't dispute that they have filed a lot of eviction cases. Robin Flagler is the president of ION, the Philadelphia-based company that manages the property for a group of investors. I feel as a landlord, we have offered our residents every possible opportunity to remain current. And I go back to, you know, we have a half a million dollars outstanding of rent. Flagler also says the complex's large number of hourly workers might have contributed to the high eviction statistics, combined with difficulties from getting help from Pennsylvania's first round of rent relief. Narenda says she's not been happy at the Alden and is looking to move when her lease is up. But she's concerned that the filing will make it harder for her to find another apartment. I'm worried because of this um, eviction that's attached to my name now. But uh, to be fair, that shouldn't even be on there because, like I said, some people might be two, three months behind. My rent is not behind. So I don't know what's going to be done for that to be taken off of my name. Probably it won't be, but I'm going to try to ask the judge. She has to return to court again next week. Kate Chiamarisi, 90.5 WESA News. This story was co-reported with Rich Lord of Public Source. Chiamarisi first reported that story in March. The story is part of an ongoing series about housing issues in Allegheny County, Pennsylvania. In a follow-up, Gia Marisi and Rich Lord of Public Source discovered that in some places, tenants have been living with leaks, infestations, and failed heating systems. And that's even after multiple inspections. And some residents are demanding change. 
Highview Gardens is an affordable housing complex in McKeesport with more than 100 apartments. It might seem like a normal summer day here. Kids are playing outside, neighbors are talking, but there are problems inside at Highview. For years, tenants have been complaining about all kinds of issues. I didn't have no heat all this winter. We had bad rodent problems. So I put a bucket here, and then when this was leaking, I had a bucket here. You're supposed to be at comfort, at ease when you come home. You're not supposed to sleep with one eye open. You're not supposed to sleep in discomfort because you don't know what's going on with your home. I'm pretty much here right now because I'm still looking for somewhere else to go. This is the only place I have to lay my head down. Those are tenants Barbara Brown, Daisha Hooper, and Radia Hill. They say that things such as leaky roofs and walls, a lack of heat in the winter, problems with mail delivery, and safety concerns pushed them to organize. So in May, some residents took what they hope will be a first step in turning things around. They voted to form a tenant union with the help of a lawyer from the nonprofit Community Justice Project. Residents voted to ask management to make a number of repairs, such as installing working mailboxes, exterminating to fix issues with mice and insects, and several other changes. The president of the tenant union, Tanya Brown, has lived here for nine years. She feels mistreated by the complex's new management. If they can go home, you have a nice heat and stuff like that and everything, and feel comfortable at home, but they don't give a about the tenants. It is unfair. It's unfair. There's babies in this building and stuff and everything. I got great grandbaby. I got grandsons and stuff. My son and them come and stuff. I'm in the house bundled up cold. Many residents say they'd like to move, but they don't think they could easily find another place to live that's affordable. Others say they stay despite the conditions because of the close bonds they have with their neighbors or other relatives who live there. The low-income apartment complex that Tanya and her neighbors live in is what's known as Project-Based Section 8. That means the apartments are privately owned, but the landlord receives a federal subsidy to supplement the rent tenants pay. Many tenants are either disabled or work in low-wage jobs. Residents say conditions at Highview had been getting worse since the new owner came in a few years ago. And they were shocked when WESA and Public Source told them who the owner is. Property records list Highview's owner as the generically named McKeesport Urban Holdings II LLC. Since 2018, that company has been controlled by PNC Bank. Here's resident Daisha Hooper again. And if it's PNC, why ain't nothing being done? The Pittsburgh-based bank is one of the biggest in the country and has a unit that buys affordable properties like Highview and nearby Midtown Towers, which the bank also owns. PNC says it aims to preserve these kinds of apartments and ensure their long-term affordability for residents. The bank says if they were bought by other investors, those units would be at risk of becoming market-rate housing. That could lead to tenants being displaced. Todd Crow is an executive vice president and manager of tax credit solutions for PNC Bank. And our motivation in acquiring each of these properties was to uh, make sure that they would remain available for the tenants that live there and that the rental assistance contract would be renewed. He says PNC believes in the importance of affordable housing, but he was clear that the properties are an investment for the bank as well. PNC also says its long-term goal is to improve the properties using low-income housing tax credits. Crow acknowledged some of the problems residents face at Highview, though he says some issues were due to disruptions caused by the pandemic. But residents say things went downhill long before COVID. January 2020. December 2020. Yeah, I think that's the... Resident Tanya Brown has stacks of letters from the Allegheny County Health Department documenting complaints about conditions at Highview over the years. And there's data to back up her concerns. Health code violations from the residents of Highview and Midtown have increased since PNC took ownership. Last year, the more than 100 violations found in the complexes accounted for 42% of all the housing-related violations logged by the county health department in McKeesport. The complexes had only accounted for around 10% of the city's violations over the prior three years. And the health department isn't the only government agency tenants have turned to for help. 
According to public data, in the first two full years of PNC's control, 911 calls from Highview and Midtown jumped 46% compared to the two years prior. One major category of 911 calls declined, fire alarms. That may reflect another problem for residents in the complex. Jeffrey Tomasic is the fire chief for the city of McKeesport. We've had issues with the fire alarm system having been taken offline due to uh, malfunction, and then we'll go up there and, and immediately test the alarm system and make sure it's working correctly, and a lot of times it hasn't been. Building inspection records from earlier this year show the system was working correctly. The company that manages the buildings for PNC did not respond to requests for comment. Some experts say the residents' complaints about poor housing conditions are symptoms of broader problems. The Pittsburgh region's shortage of affordable units means tenants have to put up with conditions they might not tolerate otherwise. Others note that while the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development inspects properties, it doesn't often regularly contact local code enforcement officials. In the meantime, resident Tanya Brown says she'll keep pushing to make Highview a better place for the families who live there. I'm not here just for myself. I'm here for everybody else, too. I'm not just in this for myself, you know. WESA's Kate Giamarisi and Rich Lord of Public Source reported that story back in August as part of an ongoing series called Tenant Cities. Since the story aired, PNC Bank has pledged immediate action to address the conditions and has met with the Highview Gardens Tenant Council. Also in Pittsburgh, people are calling on a local water authority to replace its lead water pipes in communities it serves. Lead issues face communities across the country and here in Appalachia. That's because the pipes that carry drinking water to millions of homes are still made of lead. In the past year, five children in Clarksburg, West Virginia, have tested positive for elevated levels of lead in their blood. That prompted a total reevaluation of the city's water system. West Virginia Public Broadcasting's June Leffler has more. Firefighters in Clarksburg have been hand-delivering water filtration pitchers and notices door-to-door across the city. Hello. Hi, good morning. We're with the uh, fire department. We're helping out the water board with handing out uh, water pitchers. They're visiting homes that have lead service water pipes. It doesn't automatically mean their drinking water is contaminated by lead, but there is a possibility, and customers should be cautious. Tom Friddle got a filter that day, and he plans on using it. I got two, a dog and cat. They're my kids, so yeah, I'll make sure their water is just as fresh as mine. Friddle says a lot of houses in his community are old, so he's not surprised to get the notice. His home was built in 1910. Hopefully they'll get these pipes replaced real soon. So it's a scary thought when your water is something wrong with it. Across the street, Tommy Dodd stands on his front porch after getting the notice. We all were drinking that water, and then I started thinking back on it. I mean, like, wow, what kind of effects does this lead actually have on people? I know it's not good. When Dodd moved back to this street, his son, Keenan, was in first grade. I can't say it's the lead, but if we have lead in our household and it affects kids more than adults, then this one right here, that's Keenan. Um, Ever since we lived here, he's had trouble in school. Kids exposed to certain lead levels can develop cognitive and behavioral issues. Dodd plans to ask for a lead test during his son's next routine checkup. He's 14 and about ready to start high school. His tension and his focus, his memory, it's like he can't do two or three steps at one time. In the meantime, Dodd will keep using bottled water as he has for the past few months. The only thing we use our water for is just to wash our clothes take a shower in. I don't even think it was a great idea to use it to rinse off our toothbrushes, but we did that. There are about 8,000 homes, businesses, and other customers that get their drinking water from the local public utility. Of those, about a quarter are suspected to have lead service pipes. But lead lines are actually quite common throughout the U.S. It's not just Clarksburg. It's estimated that 20,000 customers have lead service lines throughout West Virginia. Just across town, Clarksburg Water Board President Paul Howe is just getting out of a board meeting. Every county seat in the state of West Virginia probably has this issue. Uh, Every county seat is old enough to have 
lead lines. Since the 1980s, no one has been allowed to install lead pipes. But those that were already in the ground can still be used, though some environmental groups say every line should be replaced. According to federal standards, utilities just have to keep an eye on the water coming out of these pipes through regular sampling, which Howe says the utility has been doing. So we've always been in compliance. So to be notified that we had a, uh, a home out of compliance, you know, we, it was shocking. So far, about 30 homes have been confirmed as having high levels of lead in their drinking water. The Water Board says it's tested the water at all schools, hospitals, and daycares in Clarksburg. None have shown elevated lead levels. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and the State Bureau of Public Health have ordered the public utility to fix the problem on their own dime. Yes, that's why we're testing every house, because we don't want to leave anything unknown. To assure every Clarksburg customer that their water is safe, the board says it will sample every service line and visually inspect it even if that means having to dig up the lines. The board says it will replace every lead line. If we can get in there and replace the lines that are causing us problems now and do a greater system upgrade, I think that might be the best in the best interest for our public. That could cost $15 million and up to three years to complete. The EPA and state have yet to approve the Water Board's plan of action. For Appalachia Health News, I'm June Leffler. Since June originally reported that story back in August, there have been a few updates. Federal authorities are requiring that Clarksburg make fixes to the water system to keep lead out of the drinking water. They've ordered the city to make these changes by September 2022. West Virginia is putting $400,000 into this project. Many residents across Appalachia live without clean water. And yet, our region also has some of the purest water in the nation. For our next story, we travel to northwestern Pennsylvania, where there are several natural lakes that were formed by glaciers 13,000 years ago. The Allegheny Front's Julie Grant visited Erie County to check out what's considered the most pristine of these lakes and how decades of work have helped protect it from invasive species. Canoeing on Lake Pleasant with experts from the Western Pennsylvania Conservancy on a weekday morning, it's quiet. We glide past green hillsides to a shoreline of thick foliage. Ellery Troyer, an environmental consultant they've hired, and his crew are here slathering what looks like paint onto the cattails. Troyer is holding a pail of herbicide that's dyed turquoise. He dips in his gloved hand to soak up the liquid, then takes the bottom of a cattail stalk between his fingers and swipes upward. So here, because this habitat is such high quality, we're doing what's called hand wiping or hand wicking. There are so many cattails, the blue herbicide helps the crew keep track of what they've treated. It will take all day to get through this half acre. It's the most targeted way to chemically treat the targets, which are all of our cattails here. Why do you have to do it one by one like this? Why not spray? If we were to spray with backpack sprayers, everything would be dead in here. And they don't want to kill anything except the cattails. It's not that cattails are always bad, but here a native variety has hybridized with a non-native species. If you go to the, the north side of the lake, you'll see what happens. They'll eventually just crowd everything else out. We keep paddling, floating past small white flowers called water crowfoot, and submerged underwater, we see yellow flowers, water marigolds. This area also supports numerous species and habitats of concern, including 14 plant and two fish species endangered in Pennsylvania. Amy Jewett, Invasive Species Coordinator with the Conservancy, which owns most of the land around Lake Pleasant, says a stand of invasive plants like those cattails can muscle out native vegetation. And less plant variety affects insects and birds. For the wildlife, that's less food for them. That's less habitat, useful habitat for them to use. So think of it as you just took out a bunch of restaurants that people would normally have eaten at or farms or something like that. For nearly 20 years, the Conservancy has been trying to control invasives and restore the lake. A hundred years ago, there was more development around Lake Pleasant. There was a dance hall and water park, and then later a social club, according to Tyson Johnston, land stewardship coordinator for the Conservancy. That ended in the 80s, and we have since purchased that property, and we've begun to remove some of the dilapidated buildings up there 
and start to restore that land as well. They've been removing the old septic systems to help improve water quality. Johnston says that's important because Lake Pleasant flows into French Creek, a biodiversity hotspot. Lake Pleasant is deep, 45 feet to the bottom and cold enough to stock trout for anglers. These days, no motorized vehicles are allowed, but you can fish or kayak here. There's little development around the lake. It's in a more natural state. Sometimes people have trouble understanding why that is important. You know, they see a nice view and they say, well, why can't we put a house there? Johnston points to other more popular glacial lakes in the region that have vacation homes, resorts, and nearby farms like Conneaut and Edinburgh Lakes. With that development comes more invasive species and water pollution. Protecting Lake Pleasant from all the possible threats takes vigilance. Okay, good. Back on land, Amy Jewett takes me by car to see one potential source of invasive plants. Just up the road from the lake is a pond left behind by the gravel industry. Jewett notices the reddish-brown plant called Phragmites. It's really common along roadsides, and she says it will spread if it's not controlled, possibly by water birds or inadvertently by people. If people use these for any kind of recreation or fishing, not cleaning their gear properly, and then go to Lake Pleasant the same day and you want to use that for recreation, they could bring a fragment of a plant along with them by accident, and it could then spread and over time become a really big problem. The Conservancy has purchased land around 24 of these nearby gravel pits to keep watch over invasives. Phragmites isn't even the worst of them. I mean, there's so many that you're forced to prioritize your work, basically, and so you can't you can't do everything. We, right. I think we all accept that we can't fix all the problems, so we focus our efforts on the ones that we can actually make a difference in. And the more invasives Jewett and her colleagues control around Lake Pleasant, the better chance they have to maintain the native species in northwest Pennsylvania's most pristine lake. For the Allegheny Front, I'm Julie Grant. Next, we're going to hear how debates over LGBTQ rights are playing out in an indigenous community in western North Carolina. Same-sex marriage is not recognized by the Cherokee Tribal Council in the Kuala Boundary. Last month, an ordinance to try to change that law failed. Blue Ridge Public Radio's Lily Knepp has been following this story. She spoke with our producer, Roxy Todd, about what she's heard from some members of the Cherokee tribe who are pushing tribal leaders to recognize same-sex marriage. So, Lily, the Cherokee Tribal Council passed a ban a few years ago, basically not recognizing same-sex marriage. Talk a little bit about that and what activists in this community did this year to try to change that law. Sure thing. So you probably know that the Obergefell decision by the Supreme Court in 2015 is what legalized same-sex marriage across the country. Um, And just before that, in 2014, in North Carolina, they actually, um, that court case was moving through the system. And kind of as a reaction to that, from what I understand, um, a resolution was brought forward to tribal council to to ban same-sex marriage. And so that's kind of where that had stood since 2014. It hadn't really come up again. And recently here in Silva, they had their first pride parade ever this year. And I spoke with a local woman who said it just felt like time that she wanted to celebrate pride on the Koala Boundary here in Western North Carolina. And so she put forward a resolution to remove this ban on same-sex marriage. Yeah, and let's listen to that story that, Lily, you produced back in June of this year about Tamara and her resolution and what happened. It's been six years since the U.S. Supreme Court made its landmark ruling making same-sex marriage legal. But that ruling doesn't apply to sovereign nations in the U.S., including the Eastern Band of Cherokee on the Kuala Boundary. A year before the Obergefell decision, the Eastern Band Tribal Council passed a resolution codifying the tribe would only recognize marriage between a man and a woman. Tamara Thompson wants that to change. I've never liked labels. I'm just me. I just love Jillian. Thompson is a member of the Eastern Band and a member of the LGBTQ community. She met her partner Jillian Goldstein while working at Harris Cherokee Casino. Um, As a non-enrolled member, I am definitely taking a step back a bit, but I do support my partner 100%. 
and I'm going to be there for her, and I, I want to see this go through. The pair could legally be married as citizens of North Carolina and the United States, but their marriage wouldn't be recognized by the Eastern Band. The Cherokees have always historically valued humanity and being human and how you treat each other. It's important for me that it's accepted, that I can be accepted. I want to make sure this gets done first. I'm not going to do it until everybody can. During her time at home during the pandemic, Thompson crafted a resolution for the Tribal Council which would recognize same-sex marriage by the Eastern Band. We finally just were like, hey, i got the time to do this, let's do this. Like, I didn't put any forethought into, oh, this is an election year. We need to get this done now. That was not a thought in my head. I just wanted it done, and I wanted it done in a way that the, the community can celebrate around it at, at Pride. Thompson brought that resolution to Tribal Council this month, but it was immediately declared dead on the floor by Tribal Council Chairman Adam Wachacha. Thompson says the Tribal Council's action hurt. It was hard to take. I felt a little emotional about it because it felt like a personal attack. It felt like they weren't just dismissing, you know, legislation, but they were dismissing an identity that I have for myself. But after that decision, Thompson found allies. I had no idea until I saw the One Feather article that was just let out last week. That's Zayi Cooper. She was raised by two moms on the Kuala Boundary. She reached out to Thompson on Facebook. I would love to work with you. I would love to form some kind of LGBTQ organization and change the culture around here on the res. So in less than two weeks, Cooper started a Facebook group which has already grown to almost 400 members. I'm the organizer of Nudale Adentedi, and that means different-hearted, different-spirited. She explains the goal of the group this way. Our goal is to bring same-sex marriage to the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. And on top of that, we are really pushing for decolonial education and changing the homophobic and transphobic culture that we have adopted here. Cooper says it's time for all of Western North Carolina, Eastern Band included, to be more accepting of the LGBTQ community. There are a lot of things that need to change around here, and people my age, we, we want a different and better Cherokee. We do, and we want to return to our traditional values. Tamara Thompson says she's resubmitted the ordinance for the next tribal council meeting on July 1st. Supporters plan to attend the meeting and are planning a demonstration before it. I'm Lily Knepp, BPR News. So Lily, since you originally reported that story earlier this summer, how did things go? Were Tamara and the other activists successful? After they, uh, she put forward this resolution for the first time, it was actually pronounced dead on the floor and didn't go anywhere. She brought it up again, and then it was added to the agenda for September. And so this September, the resolution was brought forward to tribal council for them to discuss and vote. So it was a pretty long tribal council meeting, and the discussion on this bill took over two hours. One of the tribal council members, Chelsea taylor Sunuk, spoke during the meeting and said, I just want you guys to know that I'm a member of the LGBTQ community. And so if you're voting against this, you're voting against me. And you recorded a little bit of her public statement. Let's listen to a clip from what she said at that meeting back in September. I, I didn't want to announce certain things this way. I still don't want to announce what I'm getting ready to announce. But before we vote on the amendment, I just want to take with my partner... We had our second year anniversary on 822. And guess what? Well, hold your applause because there's a bigger announcement. And I proposed to her because I love her. And man, I'm a different person. My kids see a more loving and affectionate mother because I left a detrimental marriage to a man and not that all are bad you know but i just want to say yeah she's my fiance i hope i can get married here if not maybe i'll wait for the day to come a number of local pastors came and kind of spoke to their religious beliefs and really just kind of addressed their concerns that if this ban was lifted then they were going to 
be forced to marry same-sex couples. And the Eastern Band of Cherokee Attorney General, you know, explained that that was not the case. And there was quite a bit of discussion about what having this law on the books now currently means for the Eastern Band. So one of the things, the really interesting things that the Attorney General had to say was that this law is on its face discriminatory. And so that could have some repercussions. And that was really the conversation as far as um, a lot of focus on legally what this is going to mean for the Eastern Band of Cherokee. And also, you know, religiously, a lot of spiritual discussion, really just a lot of different points happening in this meeting. I mean, it, obviously, you said it's a spiritual issue. It's a it's a religious issue. What is it you think that's really at play here? Yeah, I tried. I thought about this a lot, but I think that ultimately, if every county and every town were asked to write their own laws around same sex marriage, that this would be playing out in a very similar way across the country. And you've also, in your reporting, looked at how other indigenous communities across the country are dealing with these same questions. Tell us what you found and who you spoke with. Yeah, so looking at how um, tribal governments have same-sex marriage laws across the country was really a learning experience. There are over 500 federally recognized tribes, and all of their laws interact with this um, Supreme Court decision differently. Some of them just follow federal laws for marriage, some just follow state laws, and some of them have their own codes, kind of like the way the Eastern Band has written, where they need a state recognition, but they also have a tribal sort of ratification process in place, which is where this marriage code comes in. So there are not a whole lot of people kind of looking at across the board how all of those laws differ and come together. But overall, about 45 recognize same-sex marriage and about 10 prohibit it. And then there are a number that just don't really have specific laws about it, kind of have that gender-neutral language where it just depends on how that law is actually practiced, which is a whole other part of that equation. Well, obviously, a lot more that could play out in Western North Carolina. And Lily, I appreciate you reporting on this issue and talking with us today for Inside Appalachia. Yeah, thanks so much, Roxy. Lily Knepp is a reporter for Blue Ridge Public Radio. She was speaking with our producer, Roxy Todd. Tribal Council member Chelsea Sanook, who we heard coming out and announcing her engagement to her same-sex partner, was not re-elected to the council. She had voted in favor of the ordinance to allow same-sex marriage. We're going to close today's show with a story about a rural nurse. Ruth Owens passed away this summer at the age of 94. She lived her whole life in the same small town in the mountains of Tennessee. She worked for four decades until she retired at 85. But last year, when the StoryCorps project was in Cokeville, Tennessee, Owens sat down with her grandson, James Taylor, to talk about growing up in the late 1930s and about how she became a nurse. The first time I ever knew a doctor, I broke my arm and (laughs) rode up on a pickup truck from the mountain up to the doctor's (laughs) office. I didn't even know what a doctor was. Did you do a lot of home remedies back then, salves? Oh, yes. And- you took a teaspoonful of sugar and put a drop of turpentine for every year old you were. <laughs> that was for the worms. What made you want to be a nurse? I love people, and I love to help them physically, mentally, spiritually, any way that I can help anyone. But to be a nurse, a true nurse, you got to have compassion. Mm-hmm. And I've tried to share my compassion all my life. Back years ago, this lady, she had a little daughter that was four years old that was dying in the oxygen tent. I said, you get in that oxygen tent with her. I said, you sit and hold that baby. That's what it takes to be a good nurse. And you're not taught that. Yeah. Are you proud that your children and grandchildren went into nursing? Oh, I'm tickled to death. I've been well blessed having children that did care. Now, I'm not a brain. I'm not very smart, but... You're a heart. Yeah, I guess so. Through the years, people come up to me, and I don't know them from Adam, (laughs) and they'll say, oh, you took care of my boy. I will never forget you. So 
I want to be remembered as a person that cared. It takes a special person to be a nurse. <laughs> and that was the most rewarding profession that you could have. So I'm real thankful for that. That was Ruth Owens of Jamestown, Tennessee, with her grandson, James Taylor. Several of her kids and grandkids followed in her footsteps and became nurses. They recorded that conversation last year. Their interview will be archived at the Library of Congress. Ruth Taylor passed away this past July. She was 94 years old. Next time on Inside Appalachia, we're going to hear the story that takes us from the island of Trinidad to the mountains of West Virginia. We'll learn how a world-renowned steel pan drum maker ended up building instruments in a former coal mining town. And we'll meet the disciples keeping his legacy alive. Till then, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Blue Dot Sessions, Jake Sheps, and Dinosaur Burps. Roxy Todd is our producer. Jade Arthurholtz is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter, at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash insideappalachia to sign up for our newsletter. There you can also subscribe or download all of our stories or look for Inside Appalachia wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia, with career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.